Hello and welcome to this episode of our Common Ground podcast, Beyond Aporia. I'm your host, Brian Smith, and with us today is a multiple New York Times bestselling author. Her most recent book, Great Society, A New History, delves into the 1960s and all of the work that went around Lyndon Johnson's Great Society. Amity Schlaes. Amity, thanks so much for coming with us today. I'm so glad to be here. Now, um, what, what, are you, what are you currently doing at the moment? Beyond being an author, I have the good fortune to be chairman of the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation, which recently has established an office in Washington in Georgetown, uh, in a house uh, built in the period of America's Framers, which is suitable for a president. And of course, we also have our home site in Vermont, Plymouth Notch, Vermont, where President Coolidge was born. Coolidge is an awesome president. He's way underrated. He inspired Ronald Reagan. He inspired other presidents. But the main thing to look at is his own record. He understood the importance of economic growth to the United States. He's the entrepreneur's president. He said the chief business of the American people is people. But he also said the the chief ideal of the American people is idealism. That is, business and idealism actually go hand in hand, and too few understand that. Yeah, no, I definitely think you're right in saying that he's very underrated. Even his nickname speaks to him being sort of a lesser-known president, Silent Cal. So, yeah, and of course you wrote a book about him as well. Yes, well, the presidency is theater, right? Right. So he believed in a less bossy presidency. He didn't believe in an active jump-in, get-action Theodore Roosevelt-type presidency. And both Theodore Roosevelt and Calvin Coolidge were in the same party, the Republican Party. He certainly didn't believe in a Franklin Roosevelt type activism, he believed that the greatest strength was to show restraint, and that restraint is harder, is tougher um, than jumping around, so to speak. So you think of wind, he always calls to mind windsurfing for me, which looks so easy until you realize the core strength it requires and the agility and the response to the winds. What He managed to, through his modest holding back, restraining presidency, he achieved some feats we would um, just die for today. One, for example, is he actually cut the federal budget. Cut it. He cut it. He didn't reduce the increase, which is what lawmakers would say they did now very proudly. He actually cut it so that after 67 months in office, the government was smaller than when Coolidge came in. How do you do that? I don't think you can anymore. How do you do that? Well, there's no automatic growth. Um, but he also, he had his progressives to deal with. One was La Follette, um, plenty of Midwestern and Plains progressives, Senator Bora. Uh, he had to fight with them all the time and work with them. He was always civil. Uh, specifically what he did, he said it's uh, better to kill a bad law than to pass a good one. He didn't see any merit in just uh, legislative activity, 100 days and so on, but what he did specifically was he killed the precursors to Social Security, which were veterans' bonuses, and he stopped agricultural subsidy when it came across his desk. Hard to do because he was uh, uh, from Vermont. Mm -hmm. He was from a, a... uh, a, a tough little area where scarcely an acre was arable, yet everyone was a farmer. So he knew well the challenges of farming and loved farmers, but what he said is, you, to himself anyway, you can't do for your own what you won't do for others. America is one country, and if I give to a specific group, even one I love personally, um, I'm hurting the rest. It's a very interesting philosophy, always decent, um, always polite, kind of like Michigan, this area of Michigan anyway, in that regard. Um, and uh, Sometimes to our detriment. <laughs> we have a scholarship in his honor. So we have many, uh, several thousand candidates apply for this scholarship, and they don't have to be a Republican. It's a bipartisan, nonpartisan scholarship. We don't ask what, what they are. We don't care. But they do have to appreciate the values of Calvin Coolidge, which, which many Democrats share. So uh, they write two essays about Calvin Coolidge to apply for this scholarship. And um, unfortunately, because it's such a generous scholarship, a full ride to any college. Oh, wow. and we welcome support for that. 
any, so it's like a golden ticket, like getting in, admitted to one of the service academies, but you can go anywhere. Right. We also have a program for the finalists who are very impressive indeed and would get into almost any college, the top 100, which is called the Senators Program. And we have um, events for them in Washington, and uh, they are affiliated with Coolidge as well, lifelong. Coolidge loved education, and he loved effort. Awesome. That sounds that sounds amazing. Definitely something that I think a lot of our listeners will appreciate and hopefully uh, consider joining with you and partnering along with that really impressive initiative. Today, we are here to talk mostly about the book Great Society, uh, your newest book. The period you wrote your book about, the 1960s, is one of the most consequential decades in American history. It's uh, it involved so much stuff crammed into such a little, a short period of time, the buildup of the Vietnam War, the moon race. What, what was it that made you choose the Great Society and the sort of lesser known initiatives of Lyndon Johnson and Kennedy and Nixon to a lesser extent as the focus for this book? Well, we all want a great society. Uh, progressives do not have a monopoly on idealism. Everyone wants a great society. The only question is how you get it. And in the 60s, there were two ways to get it. One was through the private sector, that is create great companies that employ great workers and give them great salaries, or create a great society, get from good, which the U.S. was in the 60s, to great through the public sector. And this book is the story of both groups. Over and over again, as a polity, we chose the public sector. Uh, so, but that, that choice was, was going on. And then, you know, you might want to separate it out and say, can we be aspirational? Um, so what was the moon race for, the space race? It was to scare the Soviets. That was definitely there to scare the other side. But it was also to lift American sites higher uh, to improve education. One of the great spokesmen for that is Homer Hickam, who wrote October Sky. You might have seen that movie. But it was about a high school or in a place where you didn't necessarily go to college who decided he wanted to participate in space, in rocket building, rocket boy. Um, and he's still around, actually. He, he tweets on the Internet. Oh, really? um, Homer Hickam, I really admire him. So the Great Society was said people are sad in a certain area, such as Appalachia, they're down. Let's look up, give them something to hope for. The, the rocket race, of course, couldn't cover every poor person, but it could inspire every poor person. So, so that's the third way. You inspire people and they do it themselves, maybe through the public sector, maybe through the private sector. Um, and, but of course, because we generally chose the public sector, this was the third in the progressive wave uh, um, it, third progressive wave in the United States. And uh, the 60s, Lyndon Johnson was the president, although I treat Kennedy and Nixon, that's one of my revisions, who said, mm -hmm. let's have a great society, not just a good society. What did he promise? He promised to cure poverty, note the verb. He promised to work in the city, the countryside, and the classrooms. And he made that promise in Michigan at the graduation of the University of Michigan. Um, very uh, exciting event um, and th what this book looks at is how they tried it this domestic best and the brightest because we had the best and the brightest for for the Vietnam War but we also had a domestic best and the brightest the wonderful planners who thought they could redistribute or rearrange till our society got to great um, and I, I basically follow not just the policies but particularly the people yeah, absolutely. And I, I like that you noted earlier that Johnson's goal was to cure and making you know a point of that verb that he wanted to entirely eliminate poverty. He wanted to get rid of it, that there would be no more poverty later. And in terms of what he actually passed, in terms of laws that he got through Congress, he created Medicare, Medicaid, the federal funding for public education, the National Endowment for Arts, as well as the Humanities public broadcasting, built the Department of Transportation, and then a lot of environmental initiatives like the Clean Air Act, Endangered Species Act, stuff that still affects us today. And he did all this in one term. If he had not made that infamous speech where he said he would not seek or accept another term, if he had simply gone ahead and won a second term, could he have done it? Was there any chance? The evidence suggests not. 
because what Rich, it, what Richard Nixon did when he came in, imagine Richard Nixon, he's supposed to be so different from Johnson, a Republican, a sharper man, um, you know, someone who would at least acknowledge Barry Goldwater. What he did to a lot of Republicans' surprise was try to conciliate with Democrats and specifically win Democratic votes. He didn't have control of Congress, Nixon. It was a divided election. So uh, he did a number of things to please Democrats. And that's the thing about a program like this. You always have to up the person who was before you. That meant that Nixon made food stamps more widely available than had Johnson, who did made food stamps more widely available than had Kennedy, and so on. So Nixon increased the Great Society, as Johnson, one might surmise, could have done. He, and the result was, uh, of all their combined work, the disillusionment and the stagflation, the terrible purgatorial economy of the 1970s. I, I, I like that you brought up Goldwater because I wanted to talk about it. This was an election that astonished people so much so that they talked about the Republican Party is dead. We, need a, we might need a, third, a new party. Goldwater lost that election so badly that it gave Johnson a, what, two-to-one margin in both the House and the Senate. Without that, could he have passed the initiatives he did? It would have been tougher. And remember, what happens when a president dies and a new president comes in, which is what happened with Johnson, or, for example, what happened with Coolidge, uh, because Warren Harding did die in office. That president, new president, the accidental president, promises continuity, but he also wants to make his own mark. Johnson had a tremendous sympathy vote, the Democratic Party did, with the terrible loss of President Kennedy. And Johnson had more ability than Kennedy, um, as, for example, Robert Cairo shows, with Congress because he was a creature of the Senate. So um, I think the death of Kennedy enabled Johnson to do more than he otherwise would have done, uh, both electorally and sort of culturally. One thing that's very interesting to note, whom did Johnson appoint? Whom did Johnson keep? He kept Bobby Kennedy as attorney general for a while. Bobby Kennedy was really much more radical than, than, than the president, than John Kennedy. And he appointed Sergeant Shriver, his poverty czar, his poverty general, that is the brother-in-law of the late president. So Johnson said, I'm going to wrap myself in the mantle of the Kennedys and go faster on my horse uh, than they ever went on their horses. I'm the knight of, of uh, a kind of utopia. He had done that his, from the very beginning, having, you know, being sworn in with Mrs. Kennedy standing right next to him. It was all about sort of keeping that continuity with the Kennedy administration. And I, I don't think one should say that was creepy. It's not creepy. It's normal. Um, and that also there's a legitimate reason to work on continuity to keep cabinet members, which is not to cause yet greater anxiety in the country. So a president's job is to avoid panic, to preclude panic. That's calm the country. They don't always do it that well, and sometimes when they do it, they misrepresent. Presidents do because they panic begets panic, uh, and they they want to force the nation to a calmer mood. So so Johnson was continuing in a tradition of presidents calming everyone down after an assassination or a death. Talking about Kennedy, Kennedy with his new frontier sort of created many of the policies that Johnson would push further. But Kennedy's a son of affluence. He's you know from upper society, New England, whereas Johnson is uh, Texas Hill Country poverty. That's what he came from in the the sort of the schoolhouses that he taught in. If Kennedy hadn't been assassinated, if Oswald hadn't pulled the trigger in Dallas. Could Kennedy have created programs like Medicare and Medicaid the same way that Johnson did coming from the background that he came from? Well, I, I wouldn't be prejudiced against people just because they are born rich. Uh, we are all equal in the eyes of God, and a lot of us go out with nothing. Um, but uh, but in, in Kennedy's case, I don't think he wanted a great society. He, he was an introvert, and he was a more conservative person than Johnson. He didn't live to legislate. He wasn't as good at it. He didn't have as much opportunity. Congress was, uh, the numbers were less good for him in Congress than they were for Johnson. He didn't feel like it. it um, he was 
interesting as a president because he was an introvert. I'm thinking here now of one scene in my book um, or in the period Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who is later a famous senator from New York, but at the time was just a minor labor official, wrote an executive order called 10988, which allowed public sector unions in the federal government. Here, till then, they had had um, associations, but not unions. And, uh, well, this seemed like a minor business to Moynihan. Oh, okay, let them unionize. The, the executive order 10988 did not contain the right to strike. It just sort, sort of said, let them have one representative, and the government has to negotiate with that representative. Um, uh, and uh, so it elevated the associations to unions. And, and Moynihan didn't think it would have much effect. Kennedy was not so sure. He, he didn't really like it. Moynihan remembered the reluctance with which Kennedy signed this. Uh, Kennedy was a tax cutter on, on some days. Um, Kennedy understood. There's a wonderful book by Ira Stoll uh, called JFK Conservative, which would be fun to have on the air, too. Ira's a good speaker. And uh, Kennedy uh, wasn't naturally... Um, the kind of person who would expand government multifold. He did believe, and that gets to your point about being someone from affluence, um, but Johnson also did this, that men in a room can set a course, and that the even the course of the economy would be set by several men in the room. That would be Big Steel, Big Steel's union leader, and government. So imagine a tripod or three guys at a table and they would agree the prices would go up X and the economy would grow by Y and then the economy would behave and do that. Yeah. Um, that's not an entrepreneurial attitude towards growth uh, and it hurt the US but because of course the three men in the room couldn't always account for everything that was going to happen such as the rise of new kinds of steel mills in Europe or Japan that would beat us out or, um, you know, when it was a meeting with automakers in the UAW, the three couldn't imagine Toyota. Right, exactly. Or the complete change that they made in, in the just the way that things are run with their just-in-time system. They've completely revolutionized even the process of the assembly line. Well, Toyota is an interesting story. Yes, that's true. Because... Because we had such strong unions in the United States, and we can't even imagine how strong the United Auto Workers was at the time, the public sector unions were a little bitty thing until Kennedy's executive order, which kind of, what sort, gave them the, the Washington seal of approval and inspired states to allow strong unions. Um, but, uh, you know, this was a very odd period. So the point about Toyota that's really interesting is that our it showed us that our union belligerence came at a cost. Everyone knows union guys are mean. They come in the room. They don't care about the other guy. They're, they're bullies of, of their opponents, of the company, of the government, whereas, um, and that's in the name of protecting their worker, whom they love, like a tribe. That makes for an unhappy workplace, as Michigan saw, because there's a premium on the belligerence. The more you have to fight for them, that the more you can justify your existence as a belligerent union. And that meant uh, there were so many rules on our shop floors, on our assembly lines, that they couldn't stop the line very easily. And if they did, they might have to call an electrician from another union to fix something they all knew how to fix, or and they couldn't really have a conversation about what was wrong with production and what make, make a better uh, tool on the production line either because of all the union rules by the 60s I'm talking about. Toyota had none of that. A, a, a regular worker could stop the production line and express himself. We don't consider Japan a democratic open society, but in this regard, at the automakers it was, and therefore Toyota could develop all uh, um, the updates it developed um, on the assembly line, and in the beginning of this period, the period of the Great Society, my book, Toyota is not as productive as Detroit, and at the end, it's more productive than Detroit. That was a, a terrible blow to us. Yeah, certainly throughout the book, you, you spend a lot of time looking at the unions, and one of the interesting pieces of information we get is, is when you talk about Dirksen's filibuster and how he, um, he states that a true liberal would never support taking away the right of an individual to make their own decision and basically that you should be allowed to work without being forced to join a union. And I kind of get from that, especially as a subject that's come up again lately here in the Midwest, 
can a union be effective in a society that allows people to benefit from their negotiations without requiring them to join? That would be the union argument. Um, so just to, um, this is an incredibly important point, just to clarify for the listener. It used to be that all states were union states and there were no right to work states. That is, a state could not opt out of the most restrictive rules of unionism. So America was union land. That's what we got after the Wagner Act, the original law. But that was edited down to allow states to opt out to become right to work states as Michigan has, right? Yeah, yeah, we're a right to work state. I think um, Minnesota and Wisconsin are too. Well, that's astounding. It would have been astounding to the UAW leader, Walter Ruther. This is union land. Union land. And, and in any case, when you made the possibility of some states opting out of union land and being less unionized, not ununionized, but less, with more freedom for workers and employers, what you saw over time, and these charts are in the back of the book, was that the states where there that were not in union land grew faster and got the new jobs. I tell the story of Pittsfield, Massachusetts, whence the jobs migrated to the southwest, to the west, to the plains, everywhere, but mainly places where there was less unionization. So that natural experiment, which happened kind of by accident, um, and was sustained kind of by accident in the great society they wanted to end right to work as well, um, proved incredibly useful. And it's hard to make the case that a company in a right to work state is a free rider on what's happening in a union state, because when, especially nowadays when we, we have less of a pattern bargaining. So wages can be very different in different places in one industry already. Uh, so, so how are they free riders? Um, they're in another state, they work for a company that's not unionized, maybe a different company, but, but that would be the argument. Um, Walter Ruther, who's a hero of my book, a flawed hero, but a hero nonetheless, would say unions don't just get you well-paid jobs in my industry, in autos, unions give you social democracy, and without unions we wouldn't have Medicare and Medicaid. So that's how he would rebut. Um, and he, he believed, or and would probably continue to believe, that Medicare and Medicaid are great and it's just a small matter of tapping the rich more to pay for Medicare and Medicaid uh, to, to fix their problems. So, so that would be the rebuttal. Yeah. But, but this natural experiment of union states versus non-union states is incredibly important to our intelligence and our information. And that is why uh, private unions are not so important now. In fact, public sector unions are bigger as a share of the population, which would have astounded the people of the 1960s who never imagined that. Yeah, and I, I like that we're talking a little bit about how you would how you would pay for Medicare and Medicaid, and whether we you know should tap the more wealthy individuals. And in your book, you you talk about the politicians, the sort of the scientists that Lyndon Johnson brought in to explore how can we make these policies become something that'll actually work. And in, in the book, you say that they, they said the great society would succeed, but then they also could not help asking themselves a second question, by what means? And this, to me, seems like it's often a downfall of the social democracy movement in that it's easy to talk about what we want to do or to create a very interesting plan that will solve all of society's problems, but when somebody asks how are we going to pay for it, there are not any answers forthcoming. Do you see that as also kind of the downfall of that movement? Oh, well, of course. Uh, every activist must take economics so that he, he or she can argue better, if only that. Um, how we're going to pay for it is the hard part, and th this, is, this is extremely tough. We've about reach the limit of our redistribution, I would say, in the United States. It, it, and again, you have a natural experiment of states. Who is moving to Florida? Taxpayers are moving to Florida. Estate taxpayers are moving to Florida. They're moving out of the Midwest. There's a real exodus out of Connecticut. There's an exodus out of Illinois. You watch families move. It's not the weather that's making them move. It's not the invention of air conditioning that's making them move. There's plenty of mold and other disagreeable features in Florida. Very strange animals. Very well, strange yeah. animals that might bite you, alligators, <laughs> and swallow your dog in your <laughs> retirement. But why would you go? Because you want to leave your estate to your family. 
uh, or you want to earn money that's not taxed so heavily or that won't be taxed so heavily in future. We're talking then about states in fiscal trouble. So, so we have this natural experiment and we've learned that people really don't like the tax burden. They're free riders living in the United States, not necessarily because they're, um, they're then evading, avoiding, it's not illegal state taxes, but they're still paying federal taxes, which means their money is being violently redistributed that money so so uh, that these natural experiments what happens when one state is different law than another what is the outcome in terms of growth that's precious for us had we not seen that we wouldn't understand are, are, are we allowed to continue are we going to be allowed to continue doing that are states going to be allowed to continue having you know dramatically different rules whether it's a right to work state or a union state whether it's a, a high estate tax or a low you know tax state at some point can you see the federal government simply saying this isn't going to work? The, the federal government does not have that authority. Can, can I guess if to someone controls state taxes, it's not in the Constitution. Right. It, it, it can only um, get involved in allowing in certain narrow areas. So you'd have to change the Constitution, and that would be a tragedy for the United States. The states created the Constitution and the federal government, not the other way around. I, I guess that's kind of the, 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 the area I was going with. The question is, we see the movement. We see people wanting more you know, equal distribution of wealth and wanting you know, the, wealthy, the wealthier individuals to pay more taxes. I mean, we're seeing that in the current election cycle, that there are cases being made along those lines. At some point, is it possible that that sort of thing could happen or is that another case where we'll get a civil war you know states rights argument well we'll get a states rights argument and it won't be about race it'll be about truth and what's better but but what's very interesting to me is th that we're having this argument at all about socialism it's because we're rich right there is money it was said by the communists that the united states that was the only country that could afford communism <laughs> So that, and we're so rich, and then examine for a moment why we are rich. We're not rich because we redistribute. We're rich because we earn. So it, it's a real luxury to, for example, pursue green activism while ignoring who pays for it and how many family members' jobs will be lost if we do an extreme new deal while ignoring the only cheap viable option, nuclear energy. The, 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 these arguments come out of non-broad educations. Uh, so it, 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 we failed, I think, as educators, if we're that, to make sure that students at universities really see the whole picture. So they, the students come out making very naive arguments and are unaware of the consequences. That's in a way why I wrote this book, because really well-intentioned, smart, nice people wrote these laws. Um, the worst thing for your child is not that America is not green, it's that his tax rate will have to be 28% to pay for all the entitlements when he is a big grown-up earning money and past his activist stage. That's yeah. not fair. We're enslaving them through our lack of action. Um, and I'm, I'm quite uh, concerned about that. A couple other things in the Great Society that really went wrong I want to mention, and they don't all, they're not all so heavy, but they are also heavy, such as architecture made of concrete, <laughs> is there was a great faith in experts. So just sticking to Senator Moynihan, because he's such a figure in the period, um, again, seeming small, just a junior guy in government, there was some unhappiness with federal buildings. They were kind of messy. They were made to please the people who lived around them, and maybe the people around them wanted curlicues and cupolas and certainly bricks with mortar and kind of neo-colonial looking. And um, they didn't match the federal buildings either. And they certainly weren't inspiring. They contradicted themselves in their architecture. Minahan said, let's, let's hire the professionals to build buildings. Get real people. Let's hire an expert, an architect, and insist that architects and government um, determine how our buildings look because architects know more and are smarter and have cool eyeglasses, basically, oh, yeah. right? Yeah, very fancy. So, and what architects, the top architects, believed at that point, and you can see this in Michigan as well, Oscar Stonerov, who was Ruther's favorite, was they believed in big, brutal, international-style buildings. It's or, very brutalist, or yeah. brutalist, and that phrase sounds like it's brutal. It actually comes from the word for new, as in champagne, 
but it, it, it stuck because, it, because such architecture is brutal. And Moynihan wrote a directive that came to have the force of law that said government should listen to architects, not people, i.e. And government listened to architects, and we got a building like HUD in Washington, which, um, as Jack Kemp said, was 10 stories of basement. Yeah, it's just uh, terrible. Um, and then also, you know, making it even worse were, were the concessions to the automobile, which, of course, the unions here liked. Um, and the cities like so you see areas in Detroit where there's architecture that is also annihilatingly lonely or Lyndon Johnson made his own legacy with the LBJ Center a very modern uh, in Austin people don't like to walk across that cold windy plaza it's cold even on the hottest day of the year if you know what I mean right so so that was an error and later Moynihan realized it so the, the point being if you make little tiny take little tiny measures and little tiny areas that don't seem so consequential to you and seem 100% right, you can screw things up to, to magnitudes you never could imagine. Well, this is sort of the Kafka argument that, you know, just as, as you create a little change here, a little rule here, and they build on each other and build on each other, suddenly you're lost in a maze of bureaucracy from which you can never escape. That's right, and the point being, the public sector unions grew giant as a result, in part, of the little bitty executive order 1908. You would never have thought, seen it coming. And I like that we're talking about Moynihan because he's such an interesting individual. And um, I, I kind of want to look at some of the racial aspects of the Great Society. And Moynihan said in 1965, I believe, that he perceived a risk to black communities, especially that if they became reliant on assistance, that they would it would prohibit their own economic advancement outside of that assistance, that they would, it would become a cycle of just receiving the money that the government was giving them. Is it Johnson and his new society and welfare that can be blamed for that? Or is there a case of the historic levels of inequality and injustice that those communities in particular suffered from? Had it had that had an effect on that? Oh, the latter. Welfare was created well before Moynihan and Johnson. It was created, for example, in the New Deal. The aid for families with dependent children had its had its basis in the New Deal in the 1930s. And the reason it was families, dependent children, or just aid for dependent children, sometimes is the government didn't want to create what what. Roosevelt using electing to use a pejorative called the dole for men men should work get them off the dole um, in England they had the dole and they stayed on the dole so this is generations and generations of building on welfare and it was well before Johnson uh, that this perverse incentive to to uh, kick out the father basically or lose the father was present because once the working dad or man who could work dad came home, the welfare or the housing might be cut off. So, and that really happened. It's not just urban legend. There's a wonderful movie called The Myth of Pruitt-Igo about a housing complex in St. Louis. And one of the people who lived in one of those apartments, public housing, recalled that they had, the children had to lie when the social worker came. Have you seen your dad? No. Is your dad here? Under the bed, actually. Uh, you know, it was terrible because what, what a story for children to be taught to lie to social workers in order to see their father. And that was before the Great Society. It, the Great Society at various points, including Moynihan, uh, Moynihan's efforts tried to rectify this. They didn't, but they tried. I want to say about Moynihan, great question. Today we talk about canceling people or <laughs> cancel uh, culture. Yeah. yeah, cancel culture. Or we say um, cultural appropriation is, a, is a, a terrible charge. Moynihan was, as far as I know, the first modern canceled person. He was canceled. He wrote about the black family because he was colorblind, really. And he came from a very poor family not originally poor, but became poor, where dad left himself. His dad was one of those men who disappeared into the Great Depression, kind of went away and gradually didn't come back. And his mom married several times, struggled, had a bar, wasn't happy. They were much poorer than they would have been. He saw that, and he saw what that did to him and his brother. And he said, that is 
causes pathology. We've caused that also in the black community. I'm studying ethnicity and I've learned what I see is that a family like mine was displaced once in history. A family, uh, a black family that came from the South was displaced a number of times, first by plantation owners when the dad was dragged away or the mom was dragged away. Then again, through the move north, um, then again, when they were forced into public housing they didn't want to go into, where the dad might not be able to leave, we have to stop that. So he said there, a pathology arises, and that word pathology got him in trouble, and he was canceled. Uh, and there was even a conference. This was a terrible thing for him because he was a great um, social scientist. He actually had plenty of insights about what was going on in a lot of ethnic groups. And uh, there was a great White House conference in 1965, and the host said, I have been informed that a person such as Daniel Patrick Moynihan does not exist, or there is no <laughs> such person as Daniel Patrick Moynihan, the guy who, gosh darn it, conceived the conference and had to run away and hide at Wesleyan and then Harvard. That's awful when we can't all talk about problems we all share. Uh, and Moynihan, um, but what Moynihan was trying to get at is welfare alone won't do it. The black family needs an opportunity. Education needs to be better. His first choice for what to do about poor people, black or other, was to double the staff of the post office so the mail is delivered twice a day and give jobs. Because that's what can you give a man that's better than money, that's better than housing, a job to restore his dignity. Uh, that, that, uh, that didn't work out, particularly because post office employees were so expensive because of their union. Uh, if you want to follow the logic. Uh, but his next best thing, or one of Moynihan's interesting next best, next best proposals was one we hear about today, guaranteed income. Let's just pay every family guaranteed income. Get rid of those social workers who kick out the dad. So let's stop, uh, this was a wonderful Moynihan phrase. I like him because he's honest. Let's stop feeding the horses to feed the sparrows. Let's stop feeding the social workers so they can do a little bit of work for the poor people. That, that didn't become law. That was a Nixon administration proposal. Actually, Moynihan worked both sides. Um, but, uh, and one reason it didn't become law was the, the opponents of guaranteed universal income, 1960s vintage, said, if you pay all these men, they might not want to go to work, and you will create an interest group so large paying men who are both poor men and men who are, say, the, the bottom of the working class in terms of income, that we will never be able to get rid of guaranteed income, even if we do cure poverty. It will be millions and millions of voters. Um, there were also pilots in the period that later suggested, indeed, when you pay um, heads of household significant amounts of money, they sometimes don't take a job. <laughs> They, they just stay home, shock. Uh, and Tom Sowell was very good on this. He said, don't expect um, the black community to be more virtuous than the white community. All, right. all men are equal and they all like benefits. Mm -hmm. and so, so anyway, this was a rough experience for Moynihan. Um, and in the period, I, I think generally what we should point to is the racial debate shifted. At first it was about equality of opportunity. The name of the poverty law was not um, the Equal Entitlement Act. It was the Equal Opportunity Act, but that shifted, and I also trace how it shifted in the courts. There were Supreme Court cases that basically began to say, welfare is property, just like your patent that you have. It's your property, it's an entitlement. This is when the word became popularized. And woe betide anyone who dares to fight that notion or that rule. Woe befall you. Um, big difference from the attitude before, which is welfare is at the discretion of the social worker or the state government and the federal government, um, and led, of course, to much broader welfare payments. That's, the, that's what Bill Clinton basically sought to reform. So what I, I kind of wanted to go into a little bit is the question, because there are people who will argue that the Great Society was successful, and there are people, obviously, like yourself, who will argue that it, it in, in some ways failed. There are numbers in that the official poverty rate in 1963 was 19.5%. By 2017, it was 123 We're clearly trending down in terms We're of... We're not trending down because we flattened that okay. a long time ago. We have a graph in the back. We flattened that. Um, and at what price? 
you have to ask as mm -hmm. well. We flattened that 10, 12% at what price? We have an entire swath of our population dependent on money like, uh, like Oxycontin. It, it's okay for someone to get food stamps. You should never feel shame because you need SNAP or food stamps. But find me an American who doesn't say, what a shame when he hears that everyone in his family forever will be on food stamps. He'll say, what a shame, what a pity. Mm -hmm. so, so that's essentially what happened. We accustomed people to looking for benefits instead of looking for opportunity. I will say, um, so, so that, that the argument just isn't that strong, particularly with the 70s, which is also forgotten, which is hence the new socialism. The 70s were an ugly decade. One example for middle-class voters who think the socialists are kind of nice and there are kids and so on. Because we spent so much, we had a huge inflation, which could happen again. Inflation happens to countries sooner or later. What happened then? The interest rate on houses went over 15%. What does that mean? That means that the house you want to buy will have two fewer bedrooms than it otherwise would have. You will have room for one child, but not three. Wow. That's exactly how it translates. It raises the price of housing. Or it, it means you start a company and you will have five employees in your company, your startup, you're so excited for, not 10, when actually you need 10 for the momentum. These are terrible prices, the prices of the 70s. It's the period got had what was known as stagflation, which, by the way, the planner economist said was impossible. Stagflation is um, unemployment and inflation. And they used to say there was a trade-off. You could right. pick one or the others. We had both. That's also what was called the misery index, well-known in Michigan, <laughs> where unemployment plus inflation makes the misery index. It was terrifically high. The 70s were an ugly period. Uh, they set a lot of us back because we had smaller hopes. Um, and, you know, lately, uh, when we're taping this, the Dow Jones has moved up and down, and people are a little surprised because they think an ever-rising stock market is their birthright. It's just what happens. It's just what happens. Yeah, I mean, so what do you expect the Dow to be at when you're 30, if you're 25 like now? 30,000. 30,000. Yeah, yeah, 35. That's why mm -hmm. you invest. Um, or at least why your institution invests. The stock market was just really close to 1,000 in the 1960s. They wanted to get past that milestone. Well, I argue because of the Great Society, but in any case, we didn't. We didn't cross 1,000, and we're talking in nominal terms here, setting aside inflation, until the 80s. So that means we lost a half a generation to a generation of stock market increases in pensions. Wow. Yeah. And why didn't it go up? It didn't go up because the country didn't favor the private sector experiment. And talking about especially the 70s, when we got into the 80s, Reagan used a lot of his budgets to kind of demolish a number of the policies implemented in the Great Society to kind of change a lot of the things um, that began in that period. But prior to that, in the 70s, we had Carter delivering that excellent and really kind of chilling speech about the crisis of confidence that more Americans today think that the next 10 years will be worse than the previous 10 years and how shocking that was because it was the first time in the history of the country that that had happened. So is that a, is that a good sort of example of those programs had already failed completely if we're having that sort of mindset? Yes. Well, the pie grows, the stock market rise is a birthright, all things being equal. If we have a tolerable rule of law and tolerable taxes, to paraphrase Adam Smith, um, the pie shrinks or freezes when you begin to redistribute it too much. And that's what Carter was looking at. He wasn't particularly, he was a terrible economist, so was Nixon. So he wasn't really drawing the conclusions one, one would draw, but that's what he saw. Uh, and I do think an American birthright should be hope, and usually is hope. That's why the space program was so important, even though it might have been silly. It, 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 so, so that was it. And you know, when you hear now about um, 
for example, limiting the number of children to a family, that's a, 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 an incredible echo, an incredibly precise echo of what happened in the period when we came to redistribute too much and rely too much on redistribution. There was a, a zero population movement. Um, one of the leaders was Paul Ehrlich, and he proposed creating tax incentives to having a, a lot of children and a diaper tax. Wow. <laughs> um, and we, we promoted this policy, this sterilization policy in India um, was a direct result of our culture, our sort of international um, aid culture, which wanted to peg birth control to foreign aid. So you have incredibly pernicious, intrusive, in my view, um, policy by governments as a result of redistribution. Uh, one thing I remember is that uh, Robert McNamara, who believed in population limitation, he was a grim engineer after all, and having left defense in Vietnam, he was double grim, was invited to Notre Dame, a Catholic school, and there he preached birth control. Well, I can't think of an offense worse to Catholics that at a big event, <laughs> right. you preach the one thing they really oppose. Yeah. A and uh, that was the hubris of the great society figures. They were so sure they were right, they didn't think about offending people. Or that in this space, that there's something might be there in the space that they were entering. They always thought they were entering a blank field and then they were bringing improvement. But what they were doing was crowding out other ideas, attitudes, philosophies, projects. So moving, moving kind of forward to today and the, the sort of effects that the Great Society have had on us, when we're recording this, it's Super Tuesday. In an election year, there are candidates who are openly proposing increasing a lot of the policies that were created in the Great Society or creating new policies that go beyond what was proposed in the Great Society. And that, that appears to resonate with younger voters in that those candidates tend to have success. Is, is that a troubling direction for our electorate to be apparently going? Have some success, exaggerated via media that loves progressive ideas. Right. So, but it, yes, I mean that that's going on, and it, you know, um, there's a the epigraph of the book is the little quote at the head. Nothing is new; it is just forgotten. So we we forgot the results. We're we're uh, hostage to our own successes. Nothing is new; it is just forgotten. And I, lo I like that quote so much that I tried to figure out who said it first, and I found Chanel, Coco Chanel. Oh, Coco Chanel. It's absolutely <laughs> applicable to wow. fashion, but also Marie Antoinette, who was beheaded. Slightly less successful. Nothing yeah. is new. Uh, populists rise up and behead leaders. It is just forgotten. Hmm. This has happened one way or another before. So it, it, it's that. But I, I um, do think that young people should make this decision. Uh, and they should make it with information, though, and not just with excitement. You know, it, it, information helps people decide. And it's our job to supply the information. And for those opposed to socialism, who have made the decision they're opposed to socialism, it's their job and my job, for example, to hold the other side to the record. If you praise the New Deal you have to defend it. If you praise the Great Society, you have to defend it and its record. Uh, and w if the record is not explained, well, we better supply what that record is with data. As Moynihan, one of my heroes, said, you're entitled to your own opinion, but not your own facts. There might be some people who would disagree with that statement <laughs> in today's political landscape. But yeah, absolutely. No, I, I would definitely agree with that. And I guess I kind of want to finish by asking, historically, when Democrats, and I guess when I say historically, I just mean in the last century, when Democrats have been in power, they've sought to strengthen or improve the government's involvement in welfare projects. Uh, Republicans have often sought to move those efforts into the private sector to reduce the scope of government involvement. Is there any way we can reach a balance, or are we just sort of destined to flip between the two of them as each comes into power? Oh, we have reached a balance, and quite recently. Think of President Clinton and Newt Gingrich. They wrote a welfare reform. Budget was balanced, cooperation of both parties. What's missing um, is quite possible. Ameri Coolidge compromised with Democrats all the time. He had a difficult 
Congress who didn't agree with him and a split within his own party because many of the Republicans in that period were progressive. So, so of course it's possible, um, and uh, I actually believe it's likely, but only when we have more information. All right, one more question. This is just for fun. Who do you think transformed American society more in the 20th century, Roosevelt or Johnson? Roosevelt set the stage. Johnson made more commitments. Great society costs more than New Deal. In terms of commitments, there's a chart in this book about that. I would say Roosevelt, because Johnson was just his best heir ever. They both had sort of the same ideas, and it was just that Roosevelt began it, and, and Johnson sort of said, hey, I can take it way further than you ever dreamed possible. At certain times, Roosevelt said things. For example, there's one letter where he said, I don't like public sector unions. But that doesn't mean, given the opportunity to be the father of a strong new initiative of public sector unions, he might not have got behind it. Okay. Thank you so much for coming. The book is Great Society. It was called by the Wall Street Journal. Not just a story of how good people's good intentions went wrong. It's also a story of how the assumption that the near future will closely resemble the recent past can lead even the best-intentioned and most well-informed people to pursue policies that turn out to be mostly counterproductive and often destructive. It is an excellent read. It, it's it's well worth diving into, and I really appreciate you coming here and talking with us about it today. I'm so happy to be here, especially in Michigan. A lot of book of the book is about Michigan, um, and I really could appreciate some input from Michigan um, about Walter Ruther, for example. Um, please write me. Yeah, no, we have we have a lot of scholars in our listening audience and at our events, so I'm sure if you put out the call, you'll get more information than you asked for. We love talking about our own. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming, Amity. It was great having you. Thank you. Beyond Aporia is a podcast brought to you by the Hallenstein Center's Common Ground Initiative at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Hallenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. I've been your host, Brian Smith. The Center is inspired by Ralph Hallenstein's life of service and leadership. For more information, visit us at gbsu.edu hc or look us up on Facebook.